This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks that a move. I'm Corey Johnson with episode number 214. Well, just ahead, artificial intelligence comes to the pharma industry big time. And the beer and booze business is changing. Constellation Brands likes it. And we have a controversial interview, I think, with a company called Life Cycle. Lie Cycle, I should say. The big difference between a lie and a life. But Lie Cycle and their CEO, Ajay Kochar, joins us. Controversial company uh, with a new technology to deal with lithium batteries. Some tough questions for this interview coming up, but first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era. Never miss another critical event or insight ever with Era. Customize your company watch lists and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy to use, customizable interface. That's Era, A I E R A dot com. I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We're going to explain the business stories behind some stocks in a move. Joining us always, always uh, Isaac Webster from a sweltering. Los Angeles, California. Well, I mean, I wouldn't no? call this sweltering. I mean, yeah, it's warm, but we don't have the heat dome uh, that the real, much of the country is suffering from. And I, I'm, it, I'm rarely, east, it rarely gets above. And it's cooking. Yeah, it's not, we're nothing like that. We don't have the humidity um, and it rarely gets above 85 so it's well, just, I am in my uh, my my hometown of Rochester, New York, and it's cooking here. We've got some stocks that are cooking too. Yes, we do, uh, Corey. I should ask. I have to ask because I'm contractually obligated to ask this question. Yes, Corey, what stocks you're drilling down on today? Is that a drinking game? It could, we'll should, get to some drinking in a little bit, be. but first, let's talk about recursion pharmaceuticals. So this is exciting to talk about when I looked at this chart. Recursion Pharmaceuticals trades under RXRX and uh, shares have shot up 70% within the past two trading sessions. The chart is dramatic if you look it up, RXRX, and shares are 53% higher over the past 12 months. So Yes, RXRX, doctor, doctor, give me the news. Yeah. Well, um, let's talk about AI and let's talk about proteins. So uh, little my two favorite subjects here. why not <laughs> uh well biology okay so inside every cell of your body there are billions of little tiny machines at work they let your eyes see light your brain think uh they tell your Wait, DNA you mean, you mean the nanobots itself. the nanobots no oh these are proteins oh gotcha these little machines are proteins and they manage every single biological process in every living thing now there are about 200 million uh known proteins more found every year. And each one has a unique 3D shape that determines how it works and what it does. But figuring out the structure is just, it's slow. It takes forever. It's its a, a difficult process. And it is that is sort of what drug discovery is to a large degree, is figuring out how proteins express themselves and, and how uh, those proteins can work. But in November 2020, an AI computer program called uh, uh, AlphaFold 
It's owned by the company Alphabet, the makers of Google, right? AlphaFold was able to use AI to accurately predict 3D models of, of, uh, of protein structures. And this is just groundbreaking. And, and I didn't notice, uh, very few people noticed. People even in the drug industry didn't notice a lot. But the folks behind Recursion Pharmaceuticals did notice. And they have built a company around the idea of identifying proteins through AI computing and then manufacturing drugs in a wet lab guided by those AI discoveries. So uh, the company has just announced an investment. They sold $50 million of stock to AI chipmaker NVIDIA. And the stock market said, oh, wow, geez, another AI company we weren't looking for. Stock went crazy, as you mentioned. But back on June 13 of this year, just a few weeks ago, Recursion CEO Chris Gibson was speaking at a Goldman Sachs conference. And he talked about, you know, what's about to come in the world of drug discovery uh, using AI and how amusing it is that it took chat GPT to get people excited about it. So here's Chris Gibson, the recursion CEO. I think it's pretty fascinating because there were very early clues to what was happening with AlphaFold several years ago. And I don't think, that, you know, despite this AI tool largely solving or on its way to solving one of the fundamental problems of biology, the industry didn't really take note. And then a chatbot has all of a sudden changed everybody's mind, which I think is, is pretty entertaining, but it speaks a little bit to the way language and, and humans interact. Um, you know, folks who are deep in the machine learning space, who are deep in the neural network space, nothing that's happened in the last six to 12 months has been surprising. This is exactly in line with the cadence and the pace of advances that have been happening across natural language processing and computer vision over the last decade. Um, what's surprising is the way everybody's finally seeing the impact that's coming. Uh, and I think over the next six to 12 months, the impacts are going to be broad, not only in healthcare, but even in the way companies hire, uh, because there are so many tools that are being built right now that even at this early stage are going to be disruptive in the way, the way that we work. In terms of healthcare, you know, it's really challenging because unlike a large language model trained on the internet, uh, we don't always have the right data to train models to give us really, really compelling, strong, robust results. And because we're doing healthcare, the cost of failure or of a miss, uh, a, a, a incorrect inference can be very, very high. And so I think it's going to be a very interesting space to watch. And it's not surprising that healthcare is pretty far behind most of the other industries because of all of these, all of these issues. What I see as a core differentiator of recursion and very few other companies, but a few other companies in the space, is the combination of the data set and the models. Because models by themselves are going to be commoditized. There's going to be hundreds of models from lots of different companies that all have different uh, areas of focus. But if you don't have the underlying data upon which to train, I think it becomes very, very challenging. And recursion from its very founding has built large automated laboratories full of robots that are generating data at a scale that exceeds, I think, even many of the large pharma companies. And we're generating hundreds of terabytes of data every month we now have about 23 petabytes of proprietary biological data spanning the entire genome, spanning millions of molecules. Uh, and with our recent acquisitions of a digital chemistry company and a generative AI company, we can leverage all of that data to make some really exciting predictions about how biology and chemistry interact. So I think that's the core. If you go look at companies in the space, if it's just, in, uh, if it's just a computational company, 
I think it's going to be commoditized away. You need to have the combination of the wet lab and the dry lab together in order to have any chance to be impactful. So that was a long explanation of what can happen in the world of AI and drugs. Uh, but I thought it was super interesting. Um, and the notion that the future of drug discovery and that these guys might even be ahead of some of some big pharma, uh, but the future of drug discovery is going to happen uh, with AI. I think that's just a fascinating concept. It is. And, and it just makes sense, right? It just makes yeah. sense. These these algorithms, the quantum computing, of course, they're going to be able to discover but things But also, faster. again, back to this idea that the 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 data that you base the model in is going to be so proprietary and so important. Yes. And hopefully all of our information is going to be protected, but we'll see. Corey, what is your next drill down? Well, let's get back to the drinking game. Ah, yes. Constellation Brands. Constellation Brands. We haven't talked about Constellation Brands in a while. Trades under STZ. Shares have gained 10% since the start of 2023 and gained 4% over the past 12 months. So just so you know, you know keep it on, keep it on. So what's- Top of mind, yeah. uh, thinking of Constellation Brands, because I'm here in the Rochester general area, uh, as is Constellation Brands headquarters. Uh, the Finger Lakes uh, were kind of the origins of this, where they had a lot of uh, wine grapes growing where they made really, really crappy wines. But this company has grown. They've acquired some some better brands. The company's now based in Victor, New York, no longer in Fairport, adjacent to Fairport, New York. Uh, but this company, uh, for all of their fine wines, Madavi, Prisoner, uh, High West Whiskies, Svedka Vodka, uh, beer is a giant part of their business. And they are in just the sweet spot of the beer industry right now. Um, so, uh, and yes, I'm being super judgmental about what wines are good and what wines are not. Cause I can, why not? I think a lot of their wines are actually really crappy, but some is really good. Uh, but, um, what's interesting to me about this business right now is about the beer business and the high end beer business. Um, the beer business is really great for this company. Uh, Constellation Brands is seeing about 8% annual growth every year for the last few years with 40% operating margins. Wow. So really profitable. And um, uh, you probably saw the headlines uh, that Modelo had topped Bud Light and they were blaming it on the, the, the advertising for the, the one Bud Light ad that had that transgender uh, person uh, that, that was so criticized by the right and people weren't going to drink Bud Light anymore. Bud Light sales weren't a tailspin, but there is a general move and that's ridiculous. Let's just put that out there. Yeah. That's ridiculous. It's insulting. I mean, it's stupid. It's just fucking, yeah. sorry. Sorry. I just dropped it's, the F word, but like when it comes to this stuff and these criticisms, oh, I dropped the F word. You get mad. It's just, you the F -word. it's just dumb. This criticism of Bud Light, just dumb. What's really interesting that the, the larger trend is not about this political issue that maybe is easier to understand than the business issue, but what's happening within the beer industry and the wine industry in America is a big shift towards premium brands. And uh, five years ago, two-thirds of Constellation's beer business was low-end. Today, two-thirds of it is high-end. And that exactly mirrors what's going on uh, uh, in the U.S. right now, where consumers, not just for Constellation, are moving towards higher-end uh, beer and wine. Um, and really interesting. Now, Constellation uh, accelerated this by getting rid of their, their EJ Gallo business. Uh, but again, this move— Was that not uh, high-end? Modelo. Uh, Gallo's not high-end. <laughs> All right, snobby Los Angeles <laughs> Oh, my, don't they come in the big jugs, Gallo wine? I, I don't often get the chance to uh, make fun of other people for being snooty about wine. It's usually about me. But here we are. That big move towards the high end and towards things like Modelo has been really good 
for Constellation, or so says CEO Bill Newlands. If you think about Modelo Especiality, uh, we had 24 states in the first quarter growing double digits. In, in our gelato business, uh, we had 47 states grow double or triple digits uh, during the first quarter. And as, as we've already noted, those things were accelerating coming out of the quarter. So I think we're quite comfortable that uh, the largely uh, challenging issues that we faced in sort of that uh, winter time period are now behind us. And we're looking forward to a very strong uh, summer period. Relative to your question about pricing, um, we, we haven't seen any particular challenges around pricing. Uh, in fact, as we run our normal drivers and drags, the effect of pricing has actually decreased uh, uh, in our business as we've gone through uh, the early part of this year. Um, as we've noted other times, we have not seen much trade down at all away from our business and, and believe that trend is likely to continue given the strong uh, consumer uh, engagement with, with all of our brands. So they're in the right place in the right time uh, with these higher end brands. Okay, I've got to say two things here. Number one, I didn't realize that Modelo was considered a high end brand, you know, but good for them. The other irony is this, you know, Whatever backlash Bud Light got from, you know, being um, inclusive, the irony is Modelo picked up market share and Modelo is, has historically been much more inclusive out of all the beer brands, very pro LGBTQ rights. So, so anyone dropping off Bud Light to pick up a Modelo because of, you know, they think that Bud Light, uh, Shouldn't well, be. I think what we've it's just I think we pointed out here with these results is that that whole story is just silly. That people are missing the underlying business trend, uh, which is which is going on right now at Constellation. Love it. Corey, what's your next drill down? Paychecks. Paychecks trades under P A Y X and uh, shares have gained five percent a month and a three point five percent higher if you're looking at a twelve month chart. Paychecks. Um, you may notice a trend. You know where Paychecks is based? Please don't tell me Rochester. Rochester, New York. Oh, That's God. right. Uh, oh, this is, a, this is just a Rochester-focused podcast today. It's a theme. It's a theme. It's a theme. No, no offense to anyone uh, in Rochester. Love you. Uh, oh, no. I, I've, I've got plenty of All offense of the, for the Rochester. Nice I'm very happy to be here. Yeah. Uh, the revenues for this, uh, what they call human capital management solutions, Ooh. not just Paychecks That's anymore, a drinking game. Yeah. yeah. They manage payroll. Uh, this is a great business. Their year-over-year -year revenues grew in the last quarter by 7% to $1.2 billion for the May quarter. $250 million profit on $1.2 billion. That's just a really strong business. Uh, all of their segments showed some nice growth. The fools on Wall Street said, oh, they missed estimates. They beat estimates. They, whatever. The company's growing, even though they might have missed estimates. The stock is eventually responding to that growth and that fantastic profitability. But I thought it'd be interesting to look at paychecks right now because we saw some numbers subsequent to the June 30 uh, uh, earnings release from the U.S. small business confidence numbers. And small business confidence is low, but it has climbed to a seven-month high. And at the same time, we're starting to see inflation really abiding. And it makes me wonder about all these predictions about a recession. Again, I don't know if we're going to get a recession or not. The economists are still saying we're going to see a, a recession but boy, small business confidence getting better, inflation declining, salaries increasing. 
And it seems that small business pessimism is lowering. There's worry about inflation, but because it's not showing up as much, um, I, you saw that in the Small Business Conf- Optimism Index. And yes, you heard it a little bit from C- Paycheck CEO John Gibson. I think generally we've continued to see the hospitality. When you go back and look at the, our uh, jobs index, um, hospitality has probably been the laggard. Leisure and hospitality have been the laggard um, through the course of the recession. What we've seen there is they've really made a good, strong comeback, I would say, in the um, in the back half of this fiscal year for us and are, and are, and are getting back to what I've come kind of level employment levels of the other segments, not really seeing anything um, specifically out of the ordinary. Certainly in the low end of the market, you're seeing a lot more of the small companies goes back to what we said on the retention side. Newer startups, smaller companies uh, finding more pressure relative to inability to pass price, and, and so they're being scored by inflation. Um, and then also the credit, um, the, the credit situation. So a credit situation, yeah, worries, worries about inflation, but when inflation doesn't show up, maybe that abides and maybe that small business confidence increase is starting to pick up and maybe that'll be good news for paychecks, if not all of us. All right, coming up next, a fascinating interview with a company. Yes, another Rochester, New York theme. I think that was a great surprise in the middle of this interview that we did with Lifecycle CEO, Ajay Kochar, but yes, they have a huge operation that they're developing in Rochester. And uh, I took a firsthand look um, at this company, controversial company, controversial project, all about lithium, all about electric cars and electric batteries. I'm going to dig into Cycle right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. Welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. We're joined right now by Lifecycle CEO, AJ Kocher uh, from Toronto. AJ, glad to have you. Great to be on, Corey, again. Thank you. Um, so uh, uh, you guys, such a fascinating business uh, that you're in. I, I've been listening to my friend Molly Wood's uh, terrific podcast, Everybody in the Pool, where she's talking about the business of of, um, of clean energy and, and, and making the world a cleaner place. And I think about it so much because there's so, I think the whole world looks at things differently now. We look at the usage of things and the recycling of things so differently. Um, and you guys are squarely focused on that. That's right, Corey. Yeah. So as a recap, we we recycle all types of lithium-ion batteries. So think of the smallest battery you can from a smartphone, but of course, the exciting seven is electric vehicles, right? Which is a growth area. So we're operational business, close to 500 people today, work with um, almost every major automotive company in the world, battery company in the world. And we're taking those batteries. You know, one of the interesting things is we transition the economy to more decarbonized energy sources is the making of batteries is not perfect and you have a level of scrap. And so we continue to see robust growth in that domestic production of batteries in North America and Europe. And that's the scrap that we're taking as a first wave of material to recycle. And that's why we're growing alongside. And I want to get into the the, the techniques of but what you create ultimately is what you call black mass. It's intermediate product. Yeah. No, I didn't come sounds out so interesting. <laughs> so, so talk to me a little bit. And I, and I, I you, if you want to fool me on chemistry, it's easy to do. But um, uh, my teenage kids, not so much. They don't help. I don't help them study. 
but uh, talk to me about the chemistry. What ha- what happens and what are you doing that's different than the ways that um, lithium in particular has been recycled in the past? Yeah. And so the incumbent method, it's interesting, you know, if you really peel the onion, end of the day, today we're really competing against the exporting of materials to Asia. Actually, the majority of these battery materials today go overseas. And what happens to them there? Well, they may be traded, they may be, you know, brokered, but eventually it may end up in a thermal processing facility. So the traditional way of dealing with these batteries has been to burn off what you don't want. And then typically they're after a select group of metals. Which are? Which are, you know, nickel, cobalt traditionally was what they're after. But interestingly today, you know, lithium, the prices drastically changed in the last Nickel, cobalt, lithium, yeah, right. It's lithium's another key part of that. And why we started this company in 2016 was because we didn't see other people recovering lithium. The key to that is not to burn off those materials. It's to maintain a low temperature. So simply put, we run a two-phase process. It's non-thermal. The black mass you're referring to is the product of shredding batteries. So our first stage is to shred the batteries and separate the materials. I don't know where that name came from. I think it's a recycling industry term, but it, the reason it's called that is it's a black powder. So it's a, the cathode ended from the battery, the positive negative. I, it just sounds cool to me. It's like, uh, <laughs> it's like agents of shield where there was some oh, magical good, black mass. Like uh, but uh, uh, so your, your process is not thermal. It's hydro. Is that right? That's right. So mechanical when we shred and then the key is actually we take the black mass. This is what we're building in Rochester, New York and make it into battery grade materials. Again, so when people think about lithium, nickel, cobalt, that's what we're recovering out of it. That's how we get a lot of the value back. And that's really the revenue model of the business is to make that product and sell and it And what percentage of, of, of raw materials are you able to recover compared to the, the more generally uh, used thermal methods? Yeah. So the thermal methods typically would have, you know, 50% circa mass recovery. So 50% of it goes in, comes out and go back to the economy. We can be up to 95% mass recovery. So that then ripples through lithium, nickel, cobalt. Lithium is an interesting one. Today, it's probably half the value of what we can recover. Um, so it's really important. And Even though it's a very small component of a battery. Exactly. Um, it's a low mass. It, it's it's, it's what? Value. It's like less than 10% of what's in a battery usually? 2%, 3% actually in yeah. most batteries. So if not lower. So low content, but high value. Well, that's an incredible um, technique you have discovered. How was that discovered? Who discovered that? Myself and my co-founder. So we both come from the lithium industry, actually. And that's how we got in this business. We're both engineers. I'm a chemical engineer. Tim, my co-founder, is a mechanical engineer. So Tim Johnston, yeah. No Tim relation Johnston, to me. Yeah. Corey Johnston, very different person. He's also <laughs> yes, tall and skinny, apparently. You can tell it apart that way, Johnston, I guess. So he and I were working together for a number of years. We've been working together 11 years almost. And we were working with lithium mining companies that were focusing on getting lithium for EVs is now rewind 10 years ago. It's really early as part of the space. But we kept getting asked, kept wondering about recycling. And so the methods that we've employed at Lifecycle have been developed by us. We own the IP. Wait, so did you like, I mean, tell me there's an origin story where you like spilled a a polar bottle of water on a a piece of lithium or a battery and it came apart. I mean, how did you, like, were you in the lab trying to discover this? Explain to me the process. So we knew we had to break down the batteries and that's a pretty basic thing then then to get into form where you can chemically recover it. We knew hydrometallurgy was a much better way to do it because, you know, that's what you would do if this was the form of the material in the earth. You wouldn't go a higher metallurgical route. So that was kind of like the logical two stages for us. And hey, he's a mechanical engineer, the shredding part. I'm a chemical engineer, the chemical part. So it's a good... It's a good combo. 
we did try, you know, early days to blend batteries. We tried to shred them on a small scale. The key IP there is how you prevent fire. So how you prevent thermal events. And so we landed on that, which is patented. And the way we do it is under immersion of a liquid, which is water-based. And, you know, that prevents the fire. And so actually that's what's been scaled up through our journey. Of course, there's a lot of their smarts and things you learn along the way of how to separate material. And then the second step yeah. is how to get the, the lithium, the nickel, the cobalt, but also everything else, right? You can't be, we have to be a net benefit economically, environmentally. So that's been the journey here is how to figure out the right configuration on the chemical side to recover the materials. So um, you mentioned uh, uh, developing these hubs. Um, you've announced that you're going to have a study with Glencore. What was it a definitive study as opposed to, I don't know, what kind of, yeah. Yes, a definitive feasibility study. I read that and thought, well, I guess that's better than a non-definitive feasibility study. I'm not sure what the, what the distinction <laughs> Engineers is. Engineers come up with all these great terms. That is there a distinction there between a definitive feasibility study and just a feasibility study? Yeah, there study? is. Feasibility study is like an earlier stage where you're still maybe not, you know, the costs aren't totally nailed down. So the definitive part is basically to imply that the costs are getting much more. You, know, you guys said about uh, looking at, although you've got a billion dollar market cap, which is uh, really impressive, especially impressive by the fact that you lose money and you've got a $10 million revenue, trailing revenue base. Um, ex explain to me kind of where you are. You mentioned developing the, the what you guys refer to in your paperwork as a Rochester hub. Yeah. Where, where are you guys in terms of developing um, the places where this is going to take place? Yeah. And that's really the revenue model of the business. I think if you look at the company today and our quarter to quarter statements, that's not really who we are. We're end of the day, the spokes, which is the shredding parts, we call it spoken up. It's like a reverse logistics system. Those sites are to make black mass. And so we sell that black mass today as an interim model, but we're transitioning away from that. The real value will come out of the hub, getting the lithium, the nickel, the cobalt. So where we are on that is we're on track to start commissioning at the end of this year, end of 2023. That's been- What does commissioning mean? Starting you know, pre-operations essentially. So that okay. means next year is gonna be a ramp up year. Um, so we're right at that precipice of, you know, transitioning, you know, hereafter after construction is done into operations. So it's a really exciting moment for the company. Look, at the end of the day, that's a very different financial picture for the business. We'll be, sure. you know, akin to having operations instead of not. Yeah, I would think so. Well, we have, <laughs> we have operations that are spokes, to, right. be, to be clear. You know, we have 200 operational staff. So that's really important. You can't operate the hub right. supply. So that's why we have the spokes. Um, but I mean, in terms of revenue base. And, and ultimate earnings. So, and why why wait until the end of the year to start doing things in Rochester? Oh, we're in tow. We're in construction right now. So, commissioning means pre operations, but construction has to finish. So, we've been in construction now for eighteen months, uh, approximately. So, we, we have our permits. We're well in tow, and we're ahead. Of the whole industry. Well, so, by construction, what I, I, I ask because I, I actually drove by the Rochester hub this morning. Oh. Um, I, I find myself in Rochester and was out for a run on Lake Ontario and thought, you know, I'm talking to this guy this afternoon. Why don't I drive by the Rochester hub, uh, yeah. the former Kodak um, uh, facility? Yeah. Um, and there was nothing going on. There were like, there was a pickup truck and two cars in a parking lot. And the gate the wrong that, the wrong well, it's, it's the address you guys have got. What's, what's, what's the address? I'll, I'll, I'll fact check. There's myself. two addresses in Rochester. So there's actually our spoke, which is within the park. So actually you have to go through security and go into the park to get to the spoke. Uh -huh. The shredding site, which is one of those we have in New York. And then we have the hub. The hub is um, on McLaughlin Road. Okay. 205 McLaughlin Road. So it's actually, it's technically, it's adjacent to the park because we're using the park utilities. But the land we're technically on has been carved out from the park. So it's technically not part of the Kodak Park. 
yeah, I think maybe you saw the wrong thing. Well, so. I'll talk to your people. Maybe we can figure. We can see if I can. I can stop by <laughs> while I'm in town here. Uh, it is rare that I'm in Rochester, but here I am. Uh, and how, how ironic that you and I were scheduled to talk today, which just happened. Yeah, um, you see, so, you see upwards of you know 300 plus, 400 plus people on site doing construction. I don't think you can miss it. So no, okay. Well, I can't wait to see it. Um, so explain to me why at this at this Kodak facility, which was. You know, in the 1970s, one of the most bustling manufacturing facilities in the world, certainly in, in America, and is now just absolutely dead. There are there are blocks and blocks. I saw this morning, it was striking. There's saw blocks and blocks of, of empty parking lots where there once had been this great, once great yep. company of Kodak. Yeah. Um, and and I, I, there's probably a reason you have chosen Rochester of all places. Yeah. So interestingly, I mean, there's still some activity in the Kodak Park, but it's also a far cry from what it was when we did site selection. Yeah. I mean, I'm for, telling you, I saw like three or four cars in a giant parking lot. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 And that's probably near where the entrance is to the whole facility that I was referring to. So um, yeah, look, I mean, when we did site selection for this facility, that was probably 2019 or so. And we were looking, it's different for the spokes. The spokes, we want to be close to where the batteries are and you just need to be in an industrial building. It doesn't need anything too special. It's a shredding and separation operation. So you know, that's a bit more nimble, I would say, in terms of where it could go. The hubs are chemical operations at the end of the day. So what really yeah. matters is infrastructure, utilities, and the less we have to invest into infrastructure and utilities, the better, because ultimately that's our CapEx and our cost we would have to bear. So interestingly, in the Kodak Park, they have a utility that was once the utility of Kodak in the park, and they have power, they have steam, they have different gases, whatever we need, basically behind the meter. Um, in the park, ready to go, plug and play. And so that was a big pull for us. And we've had great local support. Um, you know, we're permitted for this facility. There are other peer safe facilities that are in tow that are not permitted. Um, so it's not easy to get this sort of stuff done and depends on your technology, but also depends on the locale and having the great local partners. So there's a bunch of other things. Yeah. But those are probably the top two. Another thing they had when I was growing up in this area was incredible pollution. The The Silver River was aptly named because the silver nitrate that was dumped into that river um, and the pollution was incredible. It was, you could smell it, you could see it from the distance. Uh, it's cleaned up a lot. But I would imagine that um, part of your process has got to be, you know, not to be dumping chemicals back into the river and into Lake Ontario ultimately, uh, as they did when I was uh, a kid. Spot on. Yeah. And, and different processes, obviously, but... Part of the intentional design of what we're doing is so we have, you know, minimal wastewater discharge to no wastewater discharge. All the products we're making go back to the economy. And the non-thermal part of what we're doing is a large element of that. You can imagine if you had like a furnace down the road from you, spewing stuff in the air that had to be cleaned. It's a different reality. So that's an intentional choice. It's better economically. It's also better environmentally. From a so, you, so, so again, so construction in Rochester starts in the fall, but I would see something there if I went to a different address. No, construction has been actually oh. going on for okay. 18 months. 18 months. But so, commission, so commissioning is when the factory is going to be turned on. In exactly. The year. That's the beginning of turning it on. Exactly. And that's December so, or that's? Yep. December. It's end of this year. It's exciting. Yeah. It's, uh, it's what we've been building towards. So it's an important moment in the company's history. Now you do have some revenues, um, and you guys. Uh, there was a there was a, a report out by the the short sellers at, at Blue Orca. The research guys there did that came out with a report, and one of the things they were critical of was the way that you who you sell to and the way that the, that's rev, uh, it's recognized. And I thought you and I could have a conversation about that just so I can understand you. You know, because uh, as these reports go, they're usually only on one side. And we didn't get to hear your side of it. But what essentially they said was that you sell to a reseller, 
but you recognize revenues upon that sale. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, you're, sh- the, you're shaking your head. No, I wish our listeners could hear. Twisting, uh, uh, twisting, you know, disclosed facts. Look, I'll stick to what you know. No comment on that because I think it's below us to even comment on it. Um, look, the the reality, as I mentioned, of our business model today is twofold. So we make this black mass. The black mass is intermediate material. About four years ago, we decided to start selling it because you know it's good to get some flow in the business. It helps to get yeah. the battery supply customers on the way in. But one of the challenges of that is. You know, Black Mass, you, you know, most people don't even know what it is. It's not a deep market, right? So there's not a ton of buyers. And, you know, a buyer of that material is a group called Glencore, who's actually an investor in Lifecycle um, and others. And part of the nuance of that is that there's long settlement periods for how you get paid. So three years ago or so. Well, you had a relationship. And as I recall from reading your docs, you had a relationship Traxxas. with Glencore. Well, um, And then that, that ended. And then Traxxas comes in. Glencore is an investor in the company. So there's a relationship right. with them. So basically what Traxxas is helping do, and this is very common, and this is, you know, I think preying upon, you know, pretty specific metal market sort of mechanisms and then trying to spin it into something else. You know, basically what they're helping with is a couple fold. They do, they are the buyer, they're the off taker. And to be clear, why this is actually important is because they'll actually be the off taker of our end products from the hub as well. That's even more important. But in the interim, they're buying this black mass. They help shorten that 12 month payment cycle that we were facing three, four years ago to get 75% of it up front. And then basically there's a true up payment at the end. Now, in the meantime, they're going to get paid when the actual lots are settled. And so we have this mark to market that we have to do. And if markets go up, it goes up. If markets go down, it goes down. And it's kind of funny because subsequent to that pointing out of that issue, markets went down and the mark to market went down. So it kind of refutes that point Right. You know, 100%. So let me, let me, I'm paraphrase it. I'll paraphrase and you can tell me if I'm right. So you sell to, oh, what's the company called? Traxxas. Sorry, I'm yeah, Traxxas. Largest, Sorry, you sell, so, you, so you guys sell to Traxxas. Traxxas then sells it to somebody else. Um, when you sell to Traxxas, you get paid 75% of what you and Traxxas yep. decide the value is at that point. Well, it's not deciding. It's based on the commercial terms. So the commercial terms. Right. So, they pay, they pay for it. They pay a 75% of the value of it at that point. Exactly. Uh, you recognize the 75% or you recognize hundred percent? We recognize, well, we lose control of it. So now we've sold it basically to track. But do you recognize so what you've received for it or you recognize all of, we have to all of what they might sell for? Because we lost control of it, you have to recognize the sales price of it. So, so you recognize 75% of it. The, yeah. What you recognize is what you, so that 25% doesn't matter. You're never going to, you, you might get that later. You might not. We do get that. We do get that later, but it gets trued up at the point where they get paid. Okay. Look, Corey, I think does the, it, and does that show up as a receivable for you then? Yes. The 25%? Does. Yes, it does. Okay. And the 75%, you're paid cash at that point for it. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And then the, but the 25%, it could be 25%. It could be more. If it prices more, go up, it could, less. it could be, it could, what happens if it's less than 25%? Then they basically true it up from future invoices. And this is a very common yeah, thing I, 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 in the I, I, industry, right? I mean, maybe I don't, I don't know. Point here, I think is, this is missing from the bigger picture is this is an interim model of our business. It's short-term noise from the selling of black mass, which today is our business fine quarter to quarter. But That's you said that this is going to be the model going forward maker, too. It's not the black mass maker right. and seller. We make black mass to process it at our hub to make into battery grade materials. Now those markets are much more liquid. Lithium, nickel, cobalt, much more liquid. There's obviously way more buyers for those materials. So you wouldn't be waiting 12 months right. to get paid. So you oh, wouldn't sorry, have you said it's an interim market. model. So this is not the model in the future? No, 
Because again, we okay. just to be clear, we make this black yeah. mass from the spokes. Right. That's the material from the batteries. We chose to sell it a couple of years ago to create some flow in the business. Yeah. But at the end of the day, we're making black mass and getting access to push it to the hub. So we'll stop selling black mass. We've communicated externally we're going to be inventory building black mass at the end of this year because that's a way more creative activity for us to get the lithium value out of the hub. We'll process it through the black mass, make the lithium nickel cobalt. Traxxas is the buyer as well of our end products from the hub long term as well. But again, it's the same setup, albeit it doesn't have the long tail of this settlement because of the end markets. The end markets are much more. Oh, I'm getting, getting paid now, but I, I don't want you to feel defensive. I, I just, I'm just, I, re, I read no, this no, report. No, no. I'm sure a lot of people did, and, and I've, I figured it was, was worth discussing. So, uh, so Traxxas will continue to be the buyer, but you won't have this same settlement process that you have with them now. It won't be prominent because, well, to be clear, it's all driven by the end user. So if the end user of the material is going to get, they want to settle in 12 months or wait to 12 months to pay, they have to go back to back with that. This is again, like a not getting into metals terms, back to back. In the case of lithium nickel cobalt, those are deep markets. So there's buyers of those that are, you know, obviously way more right. than the buyers of black mass. So they won't wait 12 months to pay you. It's more like a month. So interesting. Do you have to have a certain amount of volume in order to have those buyers? Is that part of it? For the black mass or for the end products? For, lithium for the end products. Um, no, you could sell small lots of that today. Um, there, there's a lithium pawn shop somewhere. Yeah, there's a spot market. It's not huge, but, but, uh, but you know, for groups at the end of the day for meaningful offtake, they want at least a significant amount of material, meaning like thousands of tons is going to be. Right. And that's like the scale so, we're at from that. Which is why you've got to have these hubs up and running in order to get to exactly. that scale to sell directly to them and collect on a hundred percent upfront, not a 75% upfront. Up exactly. Yeah. Uh, what what are what are the big uh, uh, contributors going forward to this in terms of uh, establishing your business? You're looking at a European thing with Glencore. You're doing a definitive study of a potential operation with them. What else? Yeah, I mean, look, I think the big step changes for the business one is the Rochester hub. You know, there's stages to that. I think it started commissioning its first black mass processing through the facility, its first product, and then as the facility ramps up. So there's probably four key milestones along that path. The Port of Esme hub you're referring to, the one in Italy with Glencore. Yeah, it's an interesting, super interesting opportunity. Glencore invested in us last year, $200 million in the life cycle. So they're a close partner. Part of the rationale of doing that was actually focused on potentially repurposing assets to do recycling and this resource recovery. So very interesting, kind of like the Kodak story. We really would love to look for opportunities where there's infrastructure, yeah. people, labor to repurpose. In this case, there's even equipment. Um, well, your power is probably a lot cheaper in Rochester too, because you've got all the cheap power coming from uh, exactly. And the same falls, theme for falls. same theme for Europe, right? So right. this facility with Glencore. So we've we're in the midst of a you know engineering on that. Um, mid next year is the timing we're looking to make a financial final investment decision, and then timeline for that is you know roughly three years away to be on stream. But basically, it's some things in parallel, but also staggered a bit to be. Um, you know, a bit after the Rochester hub as we ramp up so we can bring some of those learnings into the... And you, and you didn't mention uh, the Department of Energy. Uh, Department of Energy That's right. backing you guys. That's right. So back in end of What's February, we $375 million loan, uh, loan commitment from the Department of Energy. That was a long process, a year and a half, uh, long process to get there. Um, so that's a big stamp of approval. We were probably, I think, the sixth or seventh company under the current administration to get that uh, commitment. Um, so that is, that's a super helpful 
you know, low cost of capital, great partner. Is that U.S. ten-year Treasuries? No spread. So and can you draw that down now? Is it done? Yeah. So we're on track to close, you know, imminently, and then yeah, you basically you can draw on it as project financing, essentially. So that fund what has to happen to close it. To close it is basically legal documentation. Yeah. Of what? Just they've sent you papers. You got to sign them. Or? Yeah. Their their process is pretty interesting. Um, I mean, what we're used to on the commercial side through a whole range of you know, different deals is, you know, term sheets are pretty short and quick and but you're, you're lining up front and then you go into long for documentation. Interestingly, their process, they do, they kind of front end load a lot of that work. So you've really negotiated by the time they announce a commitment, they've, they've already done their deep diligence. They've, they've done, you know, their interagency review. They've actually even earmarked the funds. So for them, this is kind of just expanding it into a whole range of documents, like a full form loan agreement and silly agreements. Which is not a lot to be negotiated. It's more about doing the work on the legal side. Some companies they commit to, they have exogenous external approvals they're waiting for, like a permit. So they'll right. actually make that a condition. For us, we have our permits. That's not pertinent. So it's really just about doing the legal work to get it done. So the last thing I want to mention from the Blue Orca report, they talk about Tim Johnston, your chairman and co-founder, and how the the TSX uh, venture uh, um, uh, uh, trading, you know, uh, in, in Vancouver and stuff, had banned him from from securities industry, or at least from uh, things listed in that exchange. Obviously, not where you guys are listed. And I wonder what that means to you. Is, is it have anything to do with the DOE process or anything like that? You're digging up ancient history, Corey. This is like uh, you know, uh, this is like you know, done and dusted, immaterial stuff that's been disclosed. I mean, I'm not going to adjudicate stuff that's out there disclosed. And obviously, it's not an issue. You know, subsequent to that. We brought an investment from Glencore, I mentioned, $200 million. We yeah. brought an investment from LG, $50 million. Brought an investment from the DOE, $370 million. So obviously everyone's done their work. Everything is out there, disclosed. These are non-issues uh, around the board, but obviously there's groups out there that love to spin disclosed facts to their own purposes. Yeah, I figured I'd give you guys a chance to respond to it because I hadn't seen that you'd done that. Well, there's a reason we didn't respond to it. There's which a reason is- we didn't respond to it, which is it's, you know, it's, just giving oxygen to something which doesn't need oxygen. So that's why I'm, I don't want to talk about it further. So. Um, well, uh, I wish you a lot of luck. God knows we need to uh, clean up um, uh, and, and recycle what lithium and, and other um, cobalt and other minerals we've, we've got. It'd be nice to have a better way to do it. And I wish you guys a lot of success. Thanks, Corey. Yeah, no, I mean, look, it's, it's exciting. We're, this is going to be the largest facility to process black mass and these battery materials in the Western world. Actually, frankly, I think even including China. And it's very topical, right? We need lithium, we need nickel, we need cobalt to make the energy transition happen. We need it for batteries and we need it domestically sourced, right? That's the whole theme of what's been happening from regulatory perspective, uh, political perspective and corporate perspective. Our customers are moving there. So this is a solution to make that happen. We had this vision a long time ago. We've been executing on it and it's right down the fairway from when Things are happening in the EV industry. Well, and you, you're, you're right. It is right on the pulse of what people are interested in right now. And it's uh, it's good stuff. Uh, AJ Kochar, thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Lifecycle CEO coming up next on The Drill Down to Bite. The one number that tells us a whole lot more about Lifecycle. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era. With Era, give yourself an information advantage. Connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A dot com. All right, we are back with the drill down bite, the one number that tells us a whole lot 
And uh, Isaac will have some notes about the interview. Well, let's talk about the interview first. We'll get to the bite because it talks a lot about these results. But uh, subsequent to our, our interview, I did, in fact, go to the other address, uh, the, the, the unlisted address, where um, Lifecycle is building their factory. And there is another office building that also only had three vehicles in front of it. Uh, in this case, two pickup trucks and a Tesla with a Lifecycle um, logo on it. And that building was empty. You could see right through it. But behind that building, quite a while, is a giant construction project going on where I saw dozens of guys in hard hats and safety vests and cement trucks moving around. And I'll post some of those pictures on my social media at Drill Down Pod, at Corey TV. But there's a lot of activity there to build this factory. We'll see what they actually get out of it once they build it. But uh, it's an interesting business. It is a, it is a speculative construction project. Um, with a business model and some interesting characters behind it. Um, uh, and as you heard from this, this interview, it was, a, um, it was an odd one. There's odd guys to have invented, these two guys who have invented this process while they're launching lots of other companies, uh, in, the, in the case of Tim Johnston, launching many companies at the same time as inventing this thing. Um, but yeah, they're putting a lot of money. They've raised a lot of money and they're putting a lot of money into the ground to build this factory. We'll see what they get out of it and when they get it. But the bite. The one that tells us a whole lot. We talked about how this company has to make adjustments after they've recorded revenues because they're, they're, the product uh, can be get put back to them or the price can get put back to them. And you saw that in the last quarter, a nascent quarter. But they did an adjustment uh, of their the fair market value of the stuff that they had already registered as revenue and had to subtract that from the revenue in the most recent quarter. How much did they have to subtract? What percentage of revenues got erased by the um, uh, the decline in the prices of, of what they had earlier sold? Isaac, 57.7%, there's your bite, 57.7% of their revenues were subtracted, in this case, $4.1 million, leaving them with uh, total revenues of just $3.6 million. So 57.7% um, of revenues were erased uh, with the volatility in lithium prices in the most recent quarter. Ouch. I just got to say ouch. Yeah, that's that's an ouch. And that's and that's the kind of thing that theoretically could happen with this company. As long as they have this arrangement where they record revenues on something that's actually not sold to an end customer, those adjustments after the fact uh, could lead to some really big swings in the ultimate revenues for this company. And hopefully we will talk again to Lifecycle as, you know, their story evolves. Uh, it would be lovely if they could achieve these 95% um, uh, uh, recyclability uh, ratios that are so much greater than what anyone has ever achieved um, in the rest of the world uh, and and indeed uh, come up with these chemicals uh, and minerals, I should say, uh, from used batteries. Uh, that would be a wonderful thing. We'll see if it actually happens. Well, and and you were, you were invited to go see, get a tour of that. Well, they did invite me, but then they did not uh, make good on that invitation. It's yet, been, uh, uh, yet, uh, many days. You know, uh, they haven't. They haven't made good. They said they said they would invite me. I've asked over and over and over and over again to actually go. I did this morning again. Drive to their facility and see their facilities. Uh, even went uh, snuck past the uh, security and everything and got to see what was going on there. They'll be. They'll love to hear that right now. Not, you know, it allows me to report to you that indeed they did have some construction going on. There are lots of it. Um, but uh, they've not made good of an invitation yet. We'll hope for it in the, in the future someday. Right, that's the Drill Down Podcast. We're grateful for your time. I'm Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster's our executive producer, Ben Wilson, our editor extraordinaire. The Drill Down's a production of the Business Podcast Network.